Christians are to live a faithful life in an adulterous world. We were hanging out in his bedroom, and while I was sitting on the floor, I saw a magazine, a sport magazine. Um, on the cover of the magazine was a skinny basketball player. He was wearing Philadelphia Sixers jersey. I didn't know who he was, so I asked my cousin. He took a look and said, oh, this is Allen Iverson. He is the coolest basketball player ever. My cousin was two years older than me, so whatever he said, I believed. And as I spent more time learning about Iverson, the more I realized that he was the coolest basketball player. And gradually, he became my basketball idol. I would buy his jerseys, shoes, and anything that has his name on. I remember collecting a lot of NBA posters, and if it's Kobe and Shaq, I would use them to cover my books, but Iverson's poster would always go on the wall. And I was very proud to say to others that he is my idol. And I don't think idolizing someone is a behavior only, behavior only practiced among teenagers. Throughout every generation, people idolize other people. A few years ago, it was apparent that Jack Ma the founder of Alibaba and Taobao, was being idolized. His biographies, lectures, you can find them, uh, the first thing you see uh, when you enter a bookstore. And I think most people would think that it's normal or even good to have idols because they can be an inspiration for you to achieve greater goals. But as Christians, we should not think that something that is normal is right. And especially regarding the topic of idol worship, our passage today from 1 Corinthians chapter 10 will show us that idol or idolatry is far from being acceptable in the life of any who proclaim to follow Jesus. And throughout these verses, I believe the Apostle Paul is calling Christians to live a faithful life in an idolatrous world. This is our main point. Christians are to live a faithful life in an idolatrous world. We'll break our passage, our message into three parts. First is the reality of idolatry. Second is the implication of idolatry. The last and the third is the danger of idolatry. So if you have a Bible or your bulletin, please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14. To 22. This is God's word. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless is another participation in the blood of Christ. 
the bread that we break? Is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there's one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Our first main point is to look at the reality of idolatry. I want you to understand what idolatry is and how we should respond to it. Paul in verse 14 directly calls the church to flee from idolatry. So in order to flee from it, we must have a clear understanding of what idolatry really means. R.C. Sproul writes that the most basic sin found in this world is that of idolatry. When we see the world word idolatry, we should be reminded that this is not a distant sin. It is a pervasive sin that takes many forms. If we look at the context of our passage, Paul does not define idolatry simply as worshiping false gods or images in the temple. He writes in chapter 10, verse 7, Do not be idolaters as some of them were. And this refers back to the Israelites who worshipped a golden calf when they were in the wilderness. But starting from verse 8, Paul did not mention about the act of worshipping the golden calf. But he directly points to the sin Israelites that they committed. They indulged in sexual immorality. They put Christ to test, and they were grumbling against God. If idolatry is just about worshiping false images or gods, then Paul would directly refer back to the very act of worshiping the golden calf. But he did not. I believe the reason Paul did not mention about the golden calf is because he knows the essence of idolatry is about unleashing man's lustful and selfish desire. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 18 to 19, Paul writes, For many walked as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Belly here means appetite. This does not mean desire for food, but desire for worldly things. Therefore, when we think of idolatry, we should not limit our thoughts to just statues or images in the temple. As much as it has to do with these false images, idolatry is driven by sinful desires. Like any other sin, it first takes place in our hearts and then realized in different behaviors. Now, if idolatry is not about just worshiping false gods, then what is it? How should we define it? John Piper gives a clear definition. He writes, an idol, an idol is the thing loved or the person loved more than God, wanted more than God, desired 
more than God, treasured more than God, enjoyed more than God. It could be a girlfriend. It could be good grades. It could be the approval of other people. It could be the success in business or projects. It could be sexual stimulation. It could be a hobby or a sport team that you are following. So basically, idols can be anything. Nothing by nature are idols. But once we decide to value it more than God, once we decide to violate God's law for that thing or that person, that has become our idol. Now, adding on to Piper's definition, I believe idol can also be things that you fear. It does not necessarily have to be things that are attractive. That can be our fear of failure, our fear of other people's judgment. When we choose to fear or submit to man rather than God, we have also committed idolatry. Brothers and sisters, is there anything that you strongly desire, even if it means disobeying God's command? Is there anything in life that you are not willing to sacrifice to God? Or is there any person or accomplishment that you believe can bring greater satisfaction or fulfillment than God? If any of the answer is yes, then that is an idol in your life. In verse 14, Paul commands the church to flee from idolatry. It means to stay away, to have no part in it, to not put ourselves in a situation where we might fall into it. The use of the word flee shows a sense of urgency and danger of the situation. The same word is often used in the Bible applying to circumstances where someone has run away from great threats. In the gospel, Jesus warned the Pharisees, warning them, saying, flee from the wrath to come. Or it can be circumstances where some armies have attacked the city and people have to flee to another town. There's a sense of urgency in this word. The word is also used to warn about the danger of something. Paul often uses the same word to warn believers to stay away from sexual sin. In the same book, chapter 6, verse 18, Paul commands them to flee from sexual immorality. In 2 Timothy, Paul also warned Timothy to flee from youthful passion. It is a warning to stay as far away as you can to the temptation and to the very sin that you might commit. And this aligns with what Jesus teaches about our attitude towards sin. In the Sermon on the Mountain, he said, For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Paul is expressing the same attitude. It is to stay as far away as you can and to do whatever it takes to get rid of sin, and in this case, to get rid of idolatry. However, the Corinthians were not fleeing. They were not fleeing. By their pride, they were testing the limit of their freedom in Christ. In verse 15, Paul writes, I speak to you as sensible people. 
judge for yourself what I say. And Paul is asking them to make their own judgment on whether or not to stay away from idol worship. The reason for Paul to make this statement is because some believers, by their knowledge of God, pridefully think that it is acceptable to, to be involved in idol feasts. If you look closely at chapter 8, verse 1 of the same book regarding food offered to idols, we see it, we see it is the statement of Corinthians saying that all of us possess knowledge. All of us possess knowledge. If you read verse 4, this knowledge is referring to the reality that an idol has no real existence and there is no God but one. And these are put into code because Paul wants to re refer to the previous letters that he wrote and Corinthians wrote back to him um, saying the exact same words, that there is no God but one. So they know the knowledge, they know the truth. And these direct statements has only created pride in their heart. Many use this knowledge as an excuse for their involvement in idol feast, thinking that the food had no power in them. They are safe. But this is a prideful attitude. We have to understand the historical context here in Corinth. Idol feasts were often involved with practice of sexual immorality, drunkenness, and other lossful activities. When the believers decide to join the idol feast, they ignorantly put themselves into temptation. That is why Paul warns them in chapter 10, verse 12, saying, Let anyone who think that he stand take heed lest he fall. Because the Corinthians were thinking that they cannot fall. They think they are secure in their knowledge of the true God. A few years ago, I was very into a combat sport called Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. It is a competition where you have to lock or submit your opponent into a position where you're fully in control. And as a beginner, I was very eager to learn all the different tricks a person can escape or can practice to escape those physical locks. But once I met a coach and he said to me that so many people misunderstand the sport thinking that black belts or pros are good at figuring out how to escape those deadly submissions. But that is not the case. The reason that they are good, the reason that they are black belts is that they understand the intention of their opponent and do their best to avoid ending up in those vulnerable positions. They can foresee the danger and they do their best to avoid. Brothers and sisters, this is the approach we must take against all temptations in our lives. Just like a black belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, a mature Christian does not put their confidence in their ability to, ex to escape strong temptations. A mature Christian does not put their confidence in their ability to escape strong temptations, but they do their best to avoid getting near them. When you're surfing on the web alone at night, you should not trust that there is wisdom or power that can save you when you're one click away from a site that you should not visit. When you go out with your friends, 
there will be no supernatural intervention you should believe in when you're just one sip away from getting drunk. It is not a sin to use the internet. Neither it is sin to drink alcohol. But that does not mean we can waste or test the limit of our freedom. Here in verse 14, our God is commanding us to flee and to stay as far away as we can from the temptation of idolatry. We should take this command to our heart and there should be no confidence in our flesh. We have just gone through the reality of idolatry. One is that it's pervasive, it is a common sin, and the other is that we have to flee from it. So it is reasonable to ask the question, why? What is the reason for us to run? Why does Paul use such a strong command? The reason, which is also our second point, is that worshiping idols is worshiping the enemy of God. This is the implication of idolatry, that worshiping idols is worshiping the enemy of God. From verse 16 to 21, Paul wants the church to know that both attending Lord's Supper and attending idol feast means more than just sacrificial rituals. Both activities are deep involvement in spiritual forces. One is with God, the other is with demons. The act of participation is clearly at the center of Paul's mind. If you look at the text, he repeatedly emphasized this throughout the passage. Verse 16 says, the cup of blessing that we bless is another participation in the blood of Christ. Again in verse, verse 16, the bread that we take is another participation in the body of Christ. Verse 18, are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? Verse 20, I do not want you to be participants with demons. In the original language, the word participation can also be translated to be a sharer of something, to be a sharer of something. This means a sense of active and in-depth involvement. Active and in-depth involvement. If you are attending a wedding, you are not just simply a person who show up. You are a participant. You are a sharer of bride and bridegroom's joy in a celebration. Now, Paul is arguing here that if anyone joins the Lord's table, he is a participant. He is a sharer of God's covenantal relationship. He is not an observer, but a receiver of God's grace through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. He writes in verse 16 that through the cup of blessing, we are participants in the blood of Christ. The cup of blessing is the cup Jesus took during his last night with disciples. In Matthew chapter 26, it writes, Jesus took a cup and said, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The poured out blood of Jesus indicates his death on the cross. And the blood was poured out for the forgiveness of sins. So this cup of blessing represents the work of Christ on the cross dying for sinners. So for anyone who participates in the Lord's table and takes this cup, he is a sharer of Christ's blood and receiver of God's forgiveness. 
But not only that, we are also partakers of Christ's body. The second half of verse 16 writes that we are also participants of Christ's body. This means that Jesus Christ's sacrifice does not only bring us to forgiveness, but also unity for all who participate in his covenant. Verse 17 says, Because there's one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Paul's focus here is that those who break the bread are declaring their unity with Christ and also unity with fellow participants. We have unity with Christ because the forgiveness of our sins is brought by the death of Jesus. He died in our place, and the life we live now is a new life purchased and given by him. We have unity with each other because all of us have been saved by the same Christ. By faith, we are participants or sharers of the same grace. Human relationships are built upon commonalities. They can be biological, they can also be thoughts and ideas. And the more important the thing that you have in common, the stronger the bondship. Imagine if someone tells you that he likes the same food as you do. You will feel closer to that person. If someone tells you that he or she came from the same hometown as you did, you may even feel more intimate towards that person. And if someone tells you that he has been saved by Christ for eternal life just like you, then that should be the strongest commonality and bondship you can find in this life. And Paul tells us in this commonality, all who believe are one in Christ Jesus. All who take the bread of the communion declare and acknowledges such unity. We proclaim to each other that the God who died for you also died for me. Paul further illustrated the meaning of participation by pointing back to the Israelites in verse 18. Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar. He's referring back to the Old Testament rituals the Corinthians were familiar with, where most of the offerings were burnt up as sacrifice to God, and some were left to priests and other worshipers to eat. And the eating of sacrifices and attending Lord's Supper point back to the same idea of receiving God's grace in His promise. Therefore, the Lord's Supper is not a superficial ritual. It presents a great value. By our participation, we are proclaiming our unity with Christ and with one another. We as a church are bearing the witness to the power of the gospel. Paul writes in verse 19 and 20 that the same value is not being carried to idol worship. Neither food offered to idols or idols are anything. But in idol worship, the believers is carrying similar type of involvement that we have in Christ, but to demons. Paul tells the church from the later half of verse 20 that I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot have fellowship with the Lord and fellowship with demons. 
The important idea here is that when believers are involved in idol worship, they're entangled with demonic powers. These spirits are servants of Satan, the devil. They're enemies of God. Their whole purpose is to tempt people to sin, to attack the church, to prevent people from understanding the gospel. Anything our Lord wants to accomplish, Satan and his demons desire to oppose. By joining the Lord's Supper, the Corinthians declare their unity with Christ. However, if at the same time they participate in idol worship, they also declare their alignment with demons. Imagine you are fighting in a war. Your enemies are trying to do everything they can to destroy you and the people you fight with. Would you want to go and shake their hands? Would you want to go and show any level of respect? Well, we don't need to imagine that we are fighting a war. We are in a war. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul reminds us that we are in a spiritual warfare, and he commands us to put on the whole armor of God. He writes, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So the Bible clearly tells us these are our enemies. We should fight against them. Although we live in the 21st century, many people today claim to be atheists. But to my knowledge, there are still many who believe and practice superstitions. Besides actual idol worship in the temple, these can be feng shui, tarot cards, or even zodiac signs. First of all, all of these does not find the power of God. These are men's superstitions. And if there's any supernatural power, it comes from demons and not God. Thus, we as Christians should have nothing to do with it other than placing ourselves among potential demonic forces. There's nothing for us to gain. Another application for us to think about is that nowhere in the Bible indicates that the devil and his demons are constrained in the temple. Neither do they only achieve evil schemes through supernatural events. So demons can be involved in ideologies and values of our culture. These can be abortion, sexual freedom, or materialism. I remember many years ago doing a conversation with other believers. I heard someone suggest that if you're a woman in this society, you must buy a house. You must be financially independent. That is the best thing you can do to protect yourself. I believe ideas or values like these can become people's idols. It promotes the idea that we can be self-sufficient. They lure people to become self-righteous and have no value for spiritual growth. Brothers and sisters, we must be careful and not to fall into the trap of the devil. 
by promoting worldly values and ideologies, we place ourselves on the side of the devil. We become God's enemy. We have learned about the reality and the implication of idolatry. When people of God worship false gods, they join the enemy of God. They submit to the very subject that they should fight against. Now, throughout the last verse, Paul warns against the church that idolatry is dangerous. This is the last point of our message, the danger of idolatry. And idolatry is dangerous for two reasons. One is that it triggers God's anger. It triggers God's anger. Second is that it makes God our enemy. It makes God our enemy. The two reasons refer back to the two rhetorical questions Paul asks. First question to the church is, shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? This means that idolatry provokes the provokes God to jealousy. Idolatry provokes God to jealousy. When we hear the word jealousy, it is difficult not to give a negative connotation. One reason is most of our culture defines jealousy as a root of some kind of evil behavior. The other reason which relates to the first is that by most of our experience and behavior, jealousy has been sinful. It is often it often comes out of our selfish heart. We can develop bitterness in our heart because other people have something that we don't. However, according to the Bible, by nature, jealousy is not sinful. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 4, God declares to the Israelites that, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now, if God, who is perfect and holy, can be jealous, we should know that jealousy by its nature is not evil. To better understand jealousy, I think it's helpful to think of it as similar emotion as anger. Most of our anger is sinful, but by its nature, anger is not a sin. There are proper circumstances where we should be angry. We should be angry at sin. We should be angry against evil deeds and injustice. Similarly, there are also proper circumstances for jealousy. If a married person feels no jealousy when his or her lover commits betrayal, then the person must have not loved. Therefore, God's jealousy is a righteous response against those who betray him. His jealousy comes out of his perfect love for his people. John Calvin explains, the Lord very frequently addresses us in the character of a husband. And as pure the husband is, the more grievously he is offended when he sees his wife inclining to a rival. Now I hope not many of us have experienced such feeling of betrayal. But even if we did, it does not match the level of offensiveness that God experiences when his people decide worship other gods because our love is not pure but his love is perfect and the greater the love the greater the anger in response to the betrayal and this is what paul tries to warn the corinthians god's jealousy kindles his anger that is the danger of idolatry 
and is facing God's anger. If you turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse, 6, verse 14 to 15, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 14 to 15, it writes, You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are around you, for the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from the off, as he destroy you from off the face of the earth. Brothers and sisters, if by your conscience you know that you are still upholding other idols in your life, you need to repent. You must fear the Lord because he is a jealous God. And the consequence of provoking him to jealousy leads you to face his wrath. Provoking our God to jealousy is the first reason for us to fear idolatry. The second reason is that idolatry make us God's enemy. Paul asks in his last sentence of this paragraph, Are we stronger than God? Are we stronger than God? If the first question is rhetorical, the second question can even be a little bit sarcastic. Obviously, the answer is no. But Paul is telling the Corinthians that by worshiping other gods, they are attacking and offending God. And they have no idea what they are against. Now, as laughable as it may seem for anyone to think that they can fight God, I think many of us might have had similar thoughts. There are moments or certain areas in life where we might believe that we know better than God, or when we think that we get to control how things should be and God is just our helper. These are foolish thoughts. These thoughts presume that we are stronger than God. In the end of the book of Job, God laid out a series of questions to reveal his power and knowledge. And these are good questions we can ask ourselves whenever we pridefully think that we are stronger than him. Just to read some part of the questions, Job 38, it says, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurement? Surely you know. Or who stretches the line upon it? And later on, God asked, Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that the flood of water may cover you? Can you send forth lightning that they may go and say to you, Here we are? Who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? Lastly, the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Brothers and sisters, my encouragement here is that all who believe in Christ should have a healthy and proper fear towards God, who is Almighty. Without it, we are vulnerable against temptations. Very often people can overemphasize God's grace and ignore his other attributes. People are tempted to only think of God as a loving father, but not a righteous judge. This is the judge who hates sin, 
and his anger is ready to pour out against the unfaithful. There's a common saying in Chinese called It implies that if a child only receives kindness from his mother, he will be spoiled. He will not learn to be obedient. Likewise, if you can only think about God's grace and mercy when we face temptation, we are likely to fall. In the face of false gods, idols, and temptations, we must understand how offensive it is against God when we submit to other gods. And we must be reminded of God's power and His righteousness. We must fear the Lord and fear the consequence of betraying Him. We shall conclude. Throughout these verses, we have learned about the reality of idolatry. Idolatry is a common sin. It tempts us in every aspect of our lives, and we must flee from it. We also learn about the implication of idolatry. Worshiping idols means aligning with demons. It means to line up with God's enemy and stand against God. Lastly, we talk about the danger of idolatry. The danger of standing against God and facing His wrath. My intention is not to burden you with such a difficult task of keeping our lives holy. I don't want you to be scared by the consequence of idolatry so that you can be obedient. The main idea of our message is a call to be faithful in an adulterous world, a call to be faithful. We're called to be faithful because by facing the temptation, idols, demonic powers of this world, we cannot win by our own strength. We can only walk one step at a time, being faithful to our Lord. Second Thessalonians chapter 3 reminds us, the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. So may this be part of our daily prayer, that we may faithfully trust in the faithfulness of God who will protect us and deliver us from the temptation of this world. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, we come to you and we know there is no other gods. You are the only true God and we place our faith in you. We trust in the work of Jesus Christ who died for us, Lord. And we pray that you may faithfully guard our heart, that we may be faithful to you and to you only, that we may not turn to other gods, Lord. Lord, may we have perseverance in our faith that by the end of our life, we can be found faithful to you as a servant, to have joy in Christ, and to celebrate with you in heaven. And pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.